Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. Do you remember the last out-of-town trip you took before the COVID lockdown started? For me, technically, it was a business trip to Austin in February of 2020, but I mean, I don't really count that one. The real trip for me and my family was a conference in Maui back in October of 2019. Yes, as in Hawaii. Although, you know, we have a Paris, Texas, so I think we should also have a place called Maui, Texas, but that's way above my pay grade. By the way, I get paid $0 to do this podcast, so really everything is above my pay grade. Anyway, today we get to travel to Hawaii together, to Honolulu. I mean, not really travel like on a plane and watching rainbows and all that, but but virtually. Our guest today is Elizabeth Steele from, you guessed it, Honolulu, Hawaii. Elizabeth is a faculty specialist with the Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of Hawaii at Manoa Center for Teaching Excellence. From 2009 to August of 2021, Elizabeth also served as Director of Admissions at the university's William S. Richardson School of Law. All of that and a lot more tells us that Elizabeth is an impressive individual, but there's more. She's also innovative. In November of 2020, alongside her faculty work, Elizabeth became a coach. Some of you may be thinking, what team? Was it, was it the Redskins? Was it the Cowboys? What team? Well, it's not that kind of coach. You see, she's a, quote, virtual presence coach. Now, I, I did air quotes, and for those of you deposition takers out there, I'll clarify. A, quote, virtual presence coach, unquote. She helps lawyers and law students improve their gravitas in a virtual meeting setting. Do we still need this with the world seeming to gradually open back up? Well, let's find out from Elizabeth herself. So we've got Professor Elizabeth Steele. Aloha and welcome to the podcast. Aloha, Rocky. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, actually, you're not a native Hawaiian, are you? You're you're from, you went to Yale Law School, if I'm not mistaken. So somehow you went from Connecticut all the way out to Hawaii. I did. I grew up in uh, College Park, Maryland, but my uh, grandmother was born and raised here in Hawaii. And I moved back as an adult running away from a, with a broken heart from the East Coast. And I have been in Hawaii now for ooh, 15, 16 years. You even say it like like normal Hawaiian people. You don't say Hawaii. You say Hawaii. Like, Hawaii. Yeah, that is the it's the uh, Hawaiian pronunciation. It's it's like people from like you know the state that Las Vegas is in. People always say Nevada, and apparently that's not right. You're supposed to say Nevada. Nevada. I didn't know. So thank you. This is about learning. This podcast is all about <laughs> learning. That's what we're doing here. Before we kind of dive into the world of the virtual presence, as it were. Tell us what a faculty specialist does. What's What kind of job is that? That sounds cool. Sure. I think it might be something that's unique to our University of Hawaii university system. Frankly, I was an administrator in higher ed, and uh, my primary function for about 11 or 12 years was to guide our admissions process at the University of Hawaii Law School, the William S. Richardson School of Law. And then I pivoted, like many of us did during um, the pandemic, um, to teaching folks how to kind of stop worrying and love the zoom to embrace it not just not just tolerate it so you know one thing i didn't mention earlier and i guess we talked about it briefly is that you graduated from yale but what led you to this particular path i mean after yale law school you could have practiced law you could have i mean heck it's yale you could have run for office god knows what but 
you decided down this. This is kind of an interesting career path, and I'm wondering what led you to it. Sure. Well, let me back up a bit. I am a first-generation loss graduate, and I knew from the very first day at Yale Law School that I this was not for me. <laughs> um, but when you have been admitted to Yale Law School, it's like winning the golden ticket. And I did make amazing friends there. And I'm for that, I am grateful. But I knew pretty early on uh, that I wasn't going to practice law. I'm the kind of person who cries in the middle of an argument. So when we have to do oral <laughs> arguments, I think at the beginning and the end of the first semester, the whole class just was like, oh, please don't cry, Elizabeth. Please don't cry. And then boom, there it was. <laughs> so this was not this was not my space. It's a good thing you weren't in baseball because there's no crying in baseball. Apparently. No crying in baseball. I love it. I love it. So when I was interested in medical ethics and art and theater. I took classes at the business school. I was a little bit of a kind of a rogue law student. (laughs) And when I graduated, I realized that my passion was teaching. And so I came to the University of Hawaii and became a lecturer and taught in women's studies and developed online classes when online classes were the new thing, which is why my law school turned to me um, during COVID times to lead our efforts to get our faculty ready to um, teach online and on camera. And that's that was actually one of my questions is, you know, it, it's I'm being a little tongue in cheek, but, you know, who the heck are you to tell us about a virtual presence? Well, what's your qualification? <laughs> but I, I guess you just you preempted my question. So you, you've already been teaching online classes. You said since was it 2004 or when were you yeah, doing this? In the, in the early days, I was one of the first, uh, not the first, but one of the first people in the Women's Studies program to teach online. And I had that background and comfort with connecting with people virtually. And so I brought that to the table. And many of my colleagues at the law school who were incredible teachers, wonderful scholars and activists, didn't have that experience. And so it was really, um, it was fun to kind of marry up um, kind of my talents and experiences with their talents and experiences. And it was it made for a really exciting um, professional transition what in 2004 sort of prompted you and the university to create this online class format i mean as, as you said you guys were pioneers in that i didn't know when the genesis of it was but to me it was much later than 2004 but sounds like you guys were ahead of the curve those were early days and i think there was the beginning um of thinking about kind of butts in seats and the cost of higher ed. We are an island state, a state of islands. And so we had real interest in trying to reach out to folks on our our neighbor islands in in the Pacific. And so I think that we were very interested in how we could take what we were doing at our flagship or main campus in Manoa, right? And um, share it with folks in other places. I think now we've we've just found our word of the day. It's archipelago. (laughs) Archipelago. I love it. Hawaii is a is a is an archipelago. This is great. We're going to use that at the next spelling bee. So, tell us as you as you kind of develop this virtual program, these online classes. What was it about that online experience that you think was so different from being in person? I mean, obviously there's the screen and all that, but how do you sort of break down what it takes to help connect with people online? I love this question, Rocky, and I'm actually and it was not pre-planned. We did not plan this. (laughs) No. Oh, I will tell you, there's a little bit of a twist. When I taught online classes, I looked out to see what my colleagues were doing. And a lot of them were, you know, kind of talking heads, um, recording lecturers and canning them. And I realized that wasn't going to work for my teaching style, which I had developed um, as an in-person teacher. And so my first and most successful online course, I actually never appeared on video. 
What I did is I created, I kind of curated readings and very well-produced videos and audio from NPR, from PBS, CNN, right? And I packaged it together. So I was much more kind of a producer of a class. Um, and I You're like the all... wizard from Wizard of Oz. <laughs> a, little, a little bit. It was it was an incredible ride. And the students were quite surprised. It was quite different than other classes they had taken. And they responded really well. And so all of our communication was written. So I would write to them and they would write to me. And I developed relationships in that class that I still have you know, now, how many years later? And it really, for me, established the fact that we could create meaningful connections with people even without video. Mm. So when it came to um, putting everything on video, I was actually, uh, and I still am, I think there are lots of opportunities for asynchronous video consumption. So, you know, Rocky makes a video and I watch the video when I have time and then I send back to you a video message, kind of like the Marco Polo app. But many of our law professors have chosen to kind of um, take their lectures and broadcast them online. And in doing so, um, they can learn a lot from professionals who do this for a living. And so I went out and spent a lot of time, I don't know, looking at the news. You may have done that too, Rocky, over, sure. the, last, <laughs> over the last several years, lots of newsworthy events. And I started to break down visually what the difference was between what I saw my colleagues doing in their teaching and what I saw producers do on television. And then I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could figure out a way to teach this how to teach law professors who did not sign up to be talking heads and break down for them how to teach with authority over video. And so that's what I do, Rocky. I'm sure it's a very complicated topic and it's probably not something we can cover in just, you know, 30 minutes or so. But if you could sort of boil it down into certain... Okay, we're lawyers. We like the word elements. Let's break it down into elements of, of an online presence. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what are the elements to online gravitas? And I like the word gravitas. Not as <laughs> much as archipelago. Not as much as archipelago. <laughs> I still like archipelago today. That's still my word of the day. So, you know, one is just literally how we show up on camera. And what we might not realize is that we are all experts at looking at people in boxes and we expect them to show up centered, for example, in the, in their, in the shot. Right? We expect them to have about four fingers of headspace. So if you took um, your hand and put it on the top of your head. I'm doing that you, right now. Yes, You are doing is, it right now. Yes. I love it, Rocky. You want to have the, your pinky, exactly, touching right about the top of your screen. If you're on MSNBC where they have really big tickers, you might have two fingers of headspace. But if you are centered in your, um, in your Zoom box and you have, yeah, there we go, four fingers of headspace, you already look like a broadcaster. So right there. <laughs> I look like I'm, I'm really inept at saluting is what it looks like. But. <laughs> we'll, we'll ask you to drop your hand. But that posture right there, that yeah. posture. Another thing, being um, how close or far to be from your camera. And frankly, you, you want to be at arm's length. So if you stretched out your fingers, if I could invite you to do that with me, you should be just about touching your webcam. Webcams are designed to work their best at about arm's length. And so these are things, um, once I've, I've taught you, these are things that are going to be easy for you to remember, right? Setting up for your next on-camera interview, right? You're the four-finger salute, the, you know, on my arm's length from my camera. Am I making eye contact with the video? This is probably, if there were going to be elements, it would be, you know, it would be your orientation to the viewer. So I attach googly eyes to my webcam as a way of making sure that I remember that my, my audience, the viewer, in order to create a sense of intimacy, I need to be connecting with them through the webcam and not looking at their image on my Zoom screen. 
Those are three elements. The challenge there is that, you know, we learn in in person interactions that you should look at the person, right? When they're speaking or when you're speaking to them, you make eye contact. I'm trying this this method that we're talking about. So I'm I'm looking at my camera mm-hmm. and I'm looking at my camera in order to engage with you, but now I can't see your reaction because you're you're just below the camera. Now, if I look to see your reaction, I'm not making eye contact. So how do you gauge, how do you sort of balance that? You know, th- this, this idea of looking the viewer in the eye, but at the same time being able to gauge their reaction so you know whether what you're saying is making sense, especially in a teaching situation. It's a little bit like driving, right? So I think you, if you, let's imagine there was, we were driving to Maui, Texas together, Rocky. And as we were driving along, right, I would want you to keep your eyes on the road or your eyes on the webcam and then check your mirrors every once, and once in a while to see how, you know, how are the jokes landing, right? Are people connecting with you by just glancing at their video box, at their Zoom box, and then going back to the camera, keeping your eye on the road. This engagement. There's actually a technical term for it. It's called a non-mutual gaze. And it's anxiety provoking because as you noted, we spend our whole lives being told to make eye contact in order to connect with other people. Right. It's unnatural. And the fact that we have to continually do it. And if we, if we, you know, if we, um, adopt this practice, it means that we're engaging in non-mutual gazes maybe for the majority of our day. And that can be really draining and can contribute to this idea of Zoom fatigue. So I'm actually suggesting that you do something that is fatiguing, right? Mm. But the impact that it has is just enormous. The difference between when I... Rocky, now I'm actually looking at your image on Zoom and not looking into the camera. And I think you can feel the difference, right? Mm. This sense of disconnectedness. But when I'm engaging you this way, we could be sitting across a conference table. So that's what was happening when I was when I was attempting to date in college and law school. It was a non-mutual <laughs> gaze. I'm looking at them. They're not looking back at me. Now it's all making sense. <laughs> it's all making sense. I love it. All that trauma from 20 plus years ago is now starting to congeal. I get it now. It was a non-mutual gaze. At least there's a phrase for it. L- let's maybe talk for a second about, you did this mostly for law professors, right? That's how it started. It started with law professors. And then folks kind of heard about what I was doing and said, you've got to watch, you've got to go and watch this, this woman do this amazing thing. <laughs> She's turned my colleagues into, you know, broadcast journalists in an hour. <laughs> and so I have now done this all around the world for lawyers, judges, attorneys, um, barristers, frankly, um, public school systems and schools, public school teachers. It's great fun to see people who may not have been excited about having to be on camera um, kind of relax and enjoy it. Once you kind of get down just a couple of those key elements, Rocky. Are you still mainly focusing on legal professionals or are you talking to people in various fields? Most folks find me through word of mouth. And so I, it's typically, I know a lot of lawyers and a lot of lawyers talk to other lawyers and then they call me. <laughs> but I absolutely um, take, take clients who, there's so many of us who need these skills right now. So it doesn't matter for public school teachers, if we, I just did the Maui City Council, <laughs> you, know, you know, anyone who is on camera, right? American Bar Association, the Law School Admissions Council, the New York State Bar Association, you know, folks realize that these are skills that they need and they want, frankly. And it's lovely to be able to break them down using my teaching background so that at the end of an hour, people feel like, whoa, you know, something is, something's actually shifted, right, in uh, my online presence, my video presence. Absolutely. So we also need to talk about, about when, whether this is still going to be relevant 
when the pandemic ends. You know, some people say it's already ended. Some people say it's going to end. We need to talk about that. But before we do, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with Elizabeth Steele. The Texas Lawyers Assistance Program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24-7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use, depression, and other mental health issues but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at one 800 343-8527. And we're back. So when we left off, Elizabeth was was talking about all the different types of people she's been teaching these, these skills of an online virtual presence to. Now the question is, will we still need these skills? You know, once once the COVID pandemic officially ends. In some places, like here in Texas, life is pretty much back to normal. But you know, in in other places, there's still mask mandates and lockdowns and so on and so forth. Once we are all as a as a nation and as a planet back to normal, you think we're still going to need to have the virtual presence? Absolutely. I think as long as we, I think there are some lessons and some takeaways um, from how we responded to this global pandemic. For those of us who live on archipelagos, I will tell you um, that- Yay, need... you used the word. Yes, <laughs> you did. worked it in. That was awesome. <laughs> I've been working with some fantastic um, Australian attorneys and talking about the, how they're able to better provide access to justice to people who live very far away from the urban centers um, on the coasts in Australia. Another example, we find that you know people who live, for example, federal Indian reservations, that's just incredible distance, right? That people have to travel to access justice systems. I think this will always, or should always be a kind of a tool that we have in our toolboxes. I adore seeing people in person. <laughs> I, I miss it. I'm looking forward to the, if I hope there is an end to this. I think even at the end, what we have realized is that with some training, we can feel comfortable using this medium to close very large physical distances. And the cost savings that we see that firms are experiencing from having kind of less of a real estate footprint, depending on um, the, the, the uh, cost of living, <laughs> where you are, the cost of, of owning property. I think there are huge gains to be made. I guess when, when you're talking about, you know, kind of thinking about this long term, there's this debate about whether we're still going to have online hearings and virtual hearings alongside in-person proceedings in courtrooms. What's your feeling on that? Are you getting any feedback from folks that you're talking to either in the U.S. or other parts of the world? I think that um, they are different media. We have to be very careful about how we deploy video, especially in criminal trials. We just know as humans that we respond very differently to people. Um, What we might not realize is how we might do that on camera. The camera is a big, um, it makes everything much more complex. For example, people are much more likable on camera when they're well lit, right? When both sides of their face are equally lit, right? Otherwise, if let's like imagine, um, if you think of like an interrogation room where the light is coming from the top of the person's head down in the, in the movie, right? And the, and the person is like, well, where were you on the night of blah, blah, blah. Right. All of these tricks from cinema, right? To create mood can be manipulated on video. 
And so I think we have to be really, really careful about how we employ this so that we are not just saying to folks, okay, you know, um, are we making decisions about who had better video quality? right? Who we could hear more clearly is the person we think is more credible. Then I think we have to be very careful about creating a playing field, right? Where um, it isn't just also access to technology and to technical know-how to give folks the advantage in court. So I know that was a very serious question, but it's one I've been thinking about a lot as I talk to lawyers. And speaking of lighting for lawyers or for anybody else that's in a virtual setting, are you suggesting the light should come from below? Like, do we need lights that kind of attached to our computers and illuminate us from below? Or how does that work? It's a great question. Typically, you want light to be um, facing us. In most cases, if you're facing a window during daylight, natural light is going to be the, is going to do you. <laughs> you're going to be all set. The trick is that you're going to need access to natural light. And if you don't have it, you want to have light that's shining on your face, right? Um, and I think the overall effect should be what we see on the broadcast uh, news at, in the night. At night, what you'll notice is you don't see many shadows on Don Lemon's face or Rachel Maddow's face, right? And that's what we want to see when we are when are both for our lawyers and our witnesses. We want to make sure that there are no shadows, shadows under their eyes, which can read as ominous on camera. So it's literally what I find what's so exciting about the work that I do is kind of borrowing from theater and from cinema and thinking how does this apply to the practice of law, right? And to teaching. Absolutely. But then what do you do if, if you're somebody like me and you've got a face for radio and <laughs> nobody wants to see you and they'd rather just it be a dark room? Well, Rocky One, I don't agree. I don't agree with this statement. I think that we all have, we all have television faces. I think the key is figuring out how we light ourselves for, for video. And lighting is really the be-all and end-all. And the key is if you're in a room with a window, I think you are, face that window and your your webcams need light to actually do what they do well. You know, you want to give those webcams light to do, do the work. Hopefully it can be natural light. But if you're going to be filming at night, for example, getting light that um, shines on your face. I use typically two lights, one from each side. Maybe it's... Um, 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock maybe <laughs> or 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock <laughs> I mean there's a time zone difference because you're in Hawaii so no, it could be different was, for us <laughs> I was thinking about the, the hands at a clock Rocky but, I know yes. but I mean you know we have to be irreverent okay so you're saying get like small spotlights to go on the top of your monitor Yes, you can. You can use LED. I use LED panel lights on the top of my monitor. You can use desk lamps and just take parchment paper from the kitchen and, you know, make a natural diffuser, an inexpensive diffuser so that you get soft light on your face. Because if you imagine, it's like if we were at a campfire and we had um, flashlights and we, we, took the flashlight and we put it under our chins and we told ghost stories, right? We wouldn't want the, the light to come from below unless we get that, you know, that like that kind of spooky look either. This is our Blair Witch moment. Yes. <laughs> it is. We want to avoid Blair Witch for Blair Witch moments. Absolutely. Talk to us about backgrounds. You know, so I, I know the listeners can't see this, but I can see your background. You've got you've got a lovely bookshelf and you've got some colorful backgrounds. You know, mine mine looks like an insane asylum. There's it's just kind of beige colored walls. What should the background look like if you're trying to engage with an audience virtually? That's a wonderful question. And it really depends on your audience and what where you want their focus to be. If you want the focus, um, typically when we are teaching and when we are making statements to the court, we want the focus to be on us. And so I, I recommend that folks 
really toned down backgrounds. I call them backgroundy backgrounds, <laughs> you know, things that don't draw attention. So actually this, um, I'm sitting in the corner of an office right now. I could throw up a virtual background that it just looks like, you know, gray and that's just fine. I think the key is that you want to stand out from your background. You don't want to blend in. So if I was wearing a black suit, I wouldn't want to choose a black background and otherwise I would just appear as a floating head above. You would be a talking head, blouse. literally exactly, a talking literally head. Literally a talking head. But I think backgrounds shouldn't pull focus from you. So for example, if you're going to show books, the spines of books, I would suggest making sure they're not visible so that the person isn't spending the time reading the spines on your bookshelf. I'm a little bit close today, um, but we were setting up for an audio or a radio interview. Sure. I may have done it differently if I were going to be doing it on video. So I would say, you know, that just that distance away so that you can kind of set the tone. You know that you're not in a hostage video, right? Oh my goodness, this person is safe, right? You know, it's the it's the fake plant, a couple of books, you know, maybe the corner of your diploma and you're good to go. The the trick is that you don't want it to be so beautiful or so luxe that it actually becomes distracting. Mm. I, I've seen those virtual backgrounds where I look and I'm like, wow, that person lives in the most beautiful home I've ever seen. And then I end up thinking about how did, you know, what kind of home is that? How did they decorate it? And I'm sitting there thinking about those things as opposed to focusing on what they're talking about. So I think that probably goes to what you're, what you're saying. You and me both, Aki, I do that too. I spend so much time and it's like, it's just like squirrel. Anytime that you can give somebody a choice to look at your Zoom box, for example, motion, right? Motion is the biggest detractor from focus. So I'm waiting for that door to open behind you. For those of you who are at home, Rocky is in a beige room and I see a, a white door. And I, I'm wondering, is that a door to a bathroom, a hallway, a front door, right? And when is it going to open? It's like whack-a-mole. I'm just waiting. It's a closet. So <laughs> I'm just waiting. It's a closet. So if somebody emerges, yeah. that's going to scare both of us. I'm going to be like, wait, well, I'll, I'll be looking at my, at my Zoom box as well. <laughs> and then I'll be looking around me going, who was that in there? So, but no, I, I, I see what you mean. I, I always thought that was just a door and people are used to that, but I see what you're saying that people are wondering, okay, is that going to open? It could it be, they're expecting something to come out of there. Absolutely. And there's a study has been shown that actually the more windows and doors are that are visible in a Zoom meeting, the higher the anxiety level. And it may just be just enough, just enough of to, that you don't even notice it, right? But anxiety has huge impacts on cognition, right? So it's really, it's all about distraction. I don't know, um, you mentioned that your family went to Maui and there's an amazing um, illusionist, magician, whose name now I completely forget, but who has a great show <laughs> that I went to when I was lost in Maui. And he keeps the audience in it just like a icebox. It is so cold in that room. And I realized, and I sat there thinking, why is it so you know, darn cold in here? <laughs> and right. then I realized actually when I'm really, really cold, it's harder for me to focus. And it then makes it easier for him, right? In this case, it was a man to make these, um, to make these illusions appear real. So it's all about manipulation. Okay. Okay. So that means I need to tell whoever's on the other side of the Zoom to just turn down their thermostat. So that way I can get away with whatever I want to. I see. See, I'm, I'm learning stuff. We're all learning things. These are guerrilla tactics in a, in a new age. To talk like Robert De Niro from Analyze This. Yo, yo. <laughs> we have a similar taste in movies, Rocky. Please, people, do not judge Elizabeth poorly because she has my taste in movies. Do not. <laughs> I, I did want to tell you something. I, I noticed in the in the lead up to today's episode, your LinkedIn game is really strong. You know, you're you're always posting, and you've got stuff on there. You've got little videos of yourself. Is that also in your 
view part of the whole virtual presence? You know, how you how you engage on social media outside of the Zoom setting? I think it is. And actually, I've, I, but I hadn't thought about it that way. I think I had a kind of dormant LinkedIn page, you know, for, I don't know, 16, 17 years. And when somebody said, you know, you really need to, to do this for a living, <laughs> you're meant to do this. I started kind of upping my, my LinkedIn game. And what I found is that, you know, there are lots of books and podcast episodes about how to, how to do this. And I just ended up saying, you know, none of that is particularly interesting. I'm just going to post when and what I want. <laughs> We'll see how that goes. Like I'm a grown up. I do what I want. I do whatever I want. (laughs) It's my page. It's my page. (laughs) So I do. I have a lot of fun. And it's actually, and maybe that's what people pick up on. I mean, I've made people, I've made friendships based on interactions with people, you know, sustained interactions with people on LinkedIn who I've never met in in an actual you know, face-to-face encounter because of the pandemic or because of the distance. You know, but frankly, I think when we are ourselves, Mm -hmm. people notice. You know, and I think people are much more interested. I know I certainly am, you know, in talking to actual people about, you know, their experiences, you know, you know, whether it be, you know, what kind of webcam should I have? I want to talk to somebody who's, you know, a little bit nuts about webcams. I've had, I've owned like 18 or 19, right? And so, but I will tell you, and I will tell you what I, what I think about what webcam you should, you know, might, might work for you. But I, I'm a, I'm an actual person. And so I, I think I lead with that. Nice of you to notice. <laughs> well, you know, I, I also, so I guess we are running a little short on time, but I wanted, we've talked a lot about the differences between a virtual and an in-person interaction. As we, as we wrap up, let's talk about the similarities. It, this is just me. I, I, I can see a situation where people might, people might at some point blend the two together and they start acting like, like the Zoom world and the, and the real world are so different from one another that they forget some of the skills that could carry from one to the other. So could we talk for just in closing about what you think are the similarities that people shouldn't forget about when they're in a Zoom setting that would have propelled them to success in an in-person setting? Great question. You know, I'm just looking at us and thinking about the similarities. You know, I'm in I'm in a room by myself. I think you may be in a room by yourself. <laughs> you know, we, unless somebody are... walks out of that closet, <laughs> then then it could be a whole other thing. But yes, you know, we both prepared for this. Right? We we checked each other out on LinkedIn on social media. <laughs> we may have listened to you know a podcast episode or two. We kind of came to this with kind of preparation. That is something that I hope leads over into our our are in-person, soon-to-be in-person connections. This idea that we're kind of thoughtful and intentional about how we want to show up. And I think that that, um, especially for as professionals, legal professionals, I think that's really, really key. You know, I've talked to um, judges who complain about people who come to Zoom and they're not wearing a tie or they're not wearing a shirt or somehow this, they kind of forget <laughs> that this is, a form, this is a formal interaction. You know, and I think there can be a tendency for all of us to kind of want to relax on video into a place where it's like, you know, this is it's like, this is my home, your home, and we're, we can just kind of chill. But I think there's also, there's a bit of artifice. I guess, did I just call it artifice? I did. Th- that might be the new word of the day. I think you, I think you called it audible. <laughs> I think there's something about, I don't know, about being intentional. Let's go with intentionality about how we present ourselves to people. That I think it's it's important to continue to 
bring into our kind of real life interactions. I don't know if that answers the question, but it's I think it does. I, There's a lot to think about, obviously, and when it's going to be interesting to see how this, how the transition. We've already experienced the transition from all in person to virtual, and now going into some kind of a hybrid where virtual is an adaptation, and seeing how people bridge that gap and what they what they take with them from each of those interactions and how they make it their own is going to be it's going to be interesting you're it sounds like your work is not going to end once we're back in person it sounds like there's there's probably much more work to be done so elizabeth thank you so much for for taking the time to join us thank and you. for sharing insights this was this was fascinating i wish we had more time this was <laughs> fascinating topic and and you've been a delightful guest thank you again Thank you, Rocky. It's been great to meet you. Same here. You know, I, I don't get to say this very often on this podcast. So, aloha. Aloha. <laughs> and of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. And I want to encourage you to stay safe and be well. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. <laughs>